So because we've been in Mark for a long time, uh, maybe we have forgotten why Mark wrote in the first place. Mark is uh, a protege, a, a follower of Peter, who is one of the three, uh, 12 really, who, who follow Jesus closely. And so Mark is writing the Jesus story after Jesus has died, risen, and now Jesus has ascended to heaven. And Mark is writing about this news. Now, what's the news? Let's just look at it again. The good news about Jesus, that's the person. Then two titles. One, the Messiah. What's that? We're going to look at that tonight. Second title, the Son of God. So Mark is writing so that you will know who Jesus is. And he's two things. He is the Messiah and he's the Son of God. Now, if all of that is foreign, no worries. Go to the right a few pages to Mark chapter 12, because finally Mark is going to talk about Jesus as the Messiah. So he said it at the beginning, I want you to know who he is, and now he's going to begin to lay it out. Mark 12, verse 35, and we've been in a string of encounters that Jesus has had with people at the temple. He's in Jerusalem, the center of worship. He's at the temple, the most holy place, and Jesus has a huge reputation, but people are out to get him, and so they're accusing him of things. They're trying to trick him in his words, but now Jesus does the teaching. Before, he's been answering questions, but now Jesus does the teaching himself, and it says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah, again, that word, the Messiah is the son of David? So let me just pause. The teachers of the law are the scribes. They're the educated ones. They're the Bible teachers. They're the lawyers. They, they, they read. They write. They're, they're very educated. And they're the people people look to. So Jesus says, and, and they teach in the temple courts. So why do these teachers of the law, scribes, say or teach that the Messiah is the son of David? We'll get to that in a moment. Now, David himself, because Jesus is going to combat this a bit. David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. So David inspired by the Holy Spirit declared. And then he quotes from a psalm. So he quotes from the Old Testament. And look at what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so, so let's just look at this. Because this is, this is new. And he's quoting something that many of us don't know. Jesus says, scribes say Messiah is going to be something like the son of David. But then Jesus quotes something written by David himself that says, David speaking, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at my feet. Now here's Jesus' explanation, verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd Listen to him with delight. This is a bit of a riddle, okay? Now, this is, since, I, since I'm not writing this out, it seems strange. David, when he writes the psalm, led by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 110, says, The Lord, speaking of God, Yahweh, The Lord said to my Lord, Adonai. Yahweh said to Adonai. David speaking, God said to someone above me, Sit at my right hand until I make um, an en uh, the, uh, your, and sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So, so here's this basic thing, and we're going to get into why in a minute. 
It's going to take a little bit of a background. If I lose you, smile and wave, boys. Smile, just, just smile and wave at me like, uh-huh, nod. And it, it, will, it will pay off at the end, okay? David says, the Lord, the creator, said to someone above me, my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand is something you'd say about someone in authority. Think of the president saying to the vice president, vice president is at his right hand. CEO of a company has a CFO or someone else at his right hand. It's a person of authority. So Jesus says, okay, the teachers are saying that the Messiah is going to be the son of David, kind of under David. And he leaves us with a riddle. How could that be? How could David say, he's above me, but you say, he is my son? And at this point, some of you are saying, so what? Like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, here's what it comes down to. Everyone was wondering who's Jesus. People were wondering, who is this guy? Because Jesus, when he was walking around, was unlike what we think. We see Jesus because of paintings and history and all this. As everyone loves him, everyone adores him. Most people, when Jesus walked planet Earth, did not follow him. Most people were confused by him. And here's why. Uh, he taught like nobody else. He did miracles like nobody else. He had this authority like nobody else. But he was not a part of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't a part of parliament. He wasn't a part of the Jewish government. He wasn't a priest, so he didn't like, you didn't bring your sacrifice to Jesus and, and, and have Jesus lead you in worship. He didn't lead a synagogue, so he didn't stay in one place. He traveled from place to place. And Jesus seems so unorthodox. He seems so like everyone else that people were wondering, who is he? Now, many people began to think, could this be, and now we're going to get into it, could this be the Messiah? Now, could this be, now what is a Messiah? We're, now let, let's get into it before we figure out the application. Messiah simply means anointed one. So is Jesus the anointed one? Now again, like what is that? Uh, back in, in their day and prior, a king, when they were installed as the king, they were made the new king, they were anointed. For us, think of it this way. You, the president is elected, and then he puts his hand on the Bible, and he's sworn in. And that's like the outward way of us saying, okay, beforehand he wasn't authorized to be president. Now, hand on the book, the Bible, now he's officially in office. Back in the day, uh, the kings would be anointed with oil. And oil was this sign of saying God's presence is on him to lead. And so they were wondering, could Jesus be God's anointed leader to lead God's people here in Israel? And that was a real question because there were people in Jesus' day wondering, could this be the one like David? Now, because you're totally with it, some of you are like, oh, I'm not sure yet, let me make it even more thrilling. Are you ready for a thrill on a Sunday night? No, you're not. Okay. Anyway, smile and wave and go to the left. Go to uh, the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, your favorite book in the Bible. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Seriously, go to 2 Samuel 7. I want you just to see this. Sometimes we, make, we, we forget that what happened in the first half of the Scripture totally relates to the second half. And this is one of those times you need to see it yourself. Because this whole talk about Messiah, son of David, they're pulling on something that happened in their history. And if we don't look at the history, we may not get what they're getting at. 
So 2 Samuel 7, and I want us to start in verse 8. Again, a lot of background, I get it. But Jesus throws out a riddle. And in order to kind of answer it and see what they're talking about, we need to see why he goes there. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 says, Now then, tell my servant David. This is that David the king. Uh, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, David is known as the greatest king that led God's people of all the kings. So this was a time where David was the king and he wanted to build God a temple in Israel. God had given them the land. He is leading in Jerusalem. And he's like, God, I want to build you a permanent place of worship. Worship happened in a tent called the tabernacle. And it moved from place to place. But he's like, God, I love you. God, I love you. Thank you for letting me lead. I want to build a place for you. And then God uses a prophet, Nathan, to tell him this message. God, I'll go and tell my servant David, back to the text. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I'm sorry, I jumped back to verse 5. Forget that. Pause. Go down to verse 8 where you were, all right? Uh, now, tell my servant, uh, servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name great, uh, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Here's what I want you to see so far. David has a heart for God, and God says, I see you. I know what you're about. David, I'm about to do something in your life. I'm going to make your name great. Something's going to happen. What is it? Verse 10, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home on their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will oppress them no more as they did at the beginning and have done since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. So David, uh, I see your heart. I see what you're doing. I brought you to the land. I'm going to give rest. I'm going to give peace. Uh, middle of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So here's where David's going to benefit. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So David's son is going to build a house. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. So let's just pause here. God says to David, um, I knew you when you were just a shepherd boy. I raised you up. I made you king. I gave you freedom. I gave you the land. I gave you the people. I'm going to give you peace. And oh, by the way, I know you have a heart to build this house. You're not going to do it, but I'm going to give you a son, Solomon. He'll build the temple, and I'm going to be with him. Just like I was with you, I'm going to be with Solomon. And not only will I be with Solomon, I will be with his children and his children and his children. Verse 14, I'm going to be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But, verse 15, my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Saul was a horrible king and God removed him. Verse 16 is the key. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. Now, I, I, I read a lot. 
but I wanted you to see at the beginning, Messiah is simply anointed one. So David was anointed to be king. And David's son, Solomon, was then anointed to be king. And then David's son, uh, Solomon's sons after him, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, were anointed to be king. And, and the whole history of Israel is the history of people who've been anointed, kings who've been set apart, blessed by God to lead the people. But who is really leading the people? God. Now, I, I want you to see that. God, the way God was going to rule and lead his people is by raising up someone, a leader, who is not going to lead by themselves. But the king's responsibility is to follow God and represent God. So, in a real sense, the king was God's partner. So this was, no, this was a huge deal. For us, you know, the inauguration, so what? You watch it, you don't. But in Israel, when there was a new king, this was seen as God's representative who's going to represent us. He's going to protect us because God's our protector. He's going to teach us because God's our teacher. And, and so all throughout the line. Now, a problem happened. About 580 years before Jesus, Israel lost their king. And if you read the Bible, you see it. First, second Kings, first, second Samuel. Eventually, the kings are so corrupt, they're so wicked, that God has to stop it. And Israel's now taken over. Israel doesn't have a king. So, how, is, how are the people of God, how are they going to follow God without their king? So for us, king is no big deal. But for, for these people, they're longing to be led by God. And God leads his people through an anointed one, a, a Messiah, who would represent God to the people and do what's right. So for 500 years, they have no king and they're longing for it. Here's where it comes in. People at the time of Jesus were looking, many, not all, but many in the first century. You see it not only in the Bible, but in writings outside of the Bible around the time of Jesus. People were longing, when is God going to send us a king? We're ruled, they're ruled by Caesar, a Roman king. They have the temple, but it's led by Rome, which is not God's best. And they're in the land, but they don't feel like they're being led by God they have a corrupt government leading them that doesn't believe that Yahweh is the one creator God. And so they're crying out, God, will you do it again? Because God promised to David. Did you hear the promise? Your, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will never end. God, are you going to be faithful to your promise? So the teachers, the scribes, they're saying back at the time of Jesus, they're saying that the, the Messiah... The one to come, how will we know who he is? How do you know when the king's going to come? He will be, like it's promised in 2 Samuel 7. He will be a son of David. So they're looking for someone who biologically is connected to the royal line. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Go back to Mark chapter 12. And now with that very long background, I hope it will begin to make Sense. If not, what did I say? Smile and waves. Just smile. Just smile and wave. Um, anyway, that's a Madagascar. Remember the penguins in Madagascar? Smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. Anyway, anyway, good Sunday night entertainment. So back to back to uh, Mark chapter twelve, and and now see the interplay. Back in verse thirty-five. Why do the teachers of the law say that Messiah is the son of David? He throws this riddle out because he's like, guys, you're looking for someone who's just a human king. 
You're looking for someone who's from this family line and maybe he'll rise up and be a human leader. What Jesus is hinting at, now Jesus never gives the full end of the story. But what he's poking at is your expectations about the Messiah are down here. You don't realize that Messiah is much greater than you're looking for. What Jesus wanted to do is clue them in. You're looking for a human king. Remember Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the what? The Son of God. He's bigger than what you're looking for. And, and you're missing it. You're looking for a human king. But God himself has come. Because Jesus isn't just Messiah, anointed one. He's also the Son of God. And so what Jesus wants them to know and us to know is that sometimes our expectations or sometimes our preconceived ideas about God are too small. Now in the end here, he, he leaves it hanging. Look at verse 37. David himself called this Messiah, Lord, how can he be his son? How can he be under when even David is saying, over and the crowd is delighted because he teaches with authority and they listen to him. They don't get the full picture of the story. But now, because we're reading the whole book, now because we have all the gospel of Mark, now that we look back and see the whole story, we see it's at work. God was not just going to send a human king because we need more than a human king. What we need is God himself to come and make the wrong right. So God just doesn't send a human. Jesus himself, the Son of God, comes and he takes on human flesh. So the anointed one isn't an ordinary man. He's so much greater. Now, because Jesus doesn't end it, in a sense, like we can't end it. He leaves it in tension. But what, what can we know? We can know that Jesus is more than a human king. Jesus is God's son. And that's what we need to get tonight. Whoever Jesus is to you, if you see him as just a good teacher... He is a good teacher. That's just not enough. If you see Jesus as a miracle worker, uh, that's good, but, but that's not enough. If you see him as a starter of a new faith, well, he didn't start a new faith. He was completing what God had already said from the beginning, but that's not enough. Jesus is not just a human king. He is the son of God, and God himself kept his promise. And that's what I think Jesus is hinting at. Second. Samuel 7 is this hint that for generation after generation, there'll be a king leading the people. And Jesus is the completion of that. He's the ultimate king. God himself has come in the person of Jesus. And now, for 2,000 years and onward, as long as, until his return, God himself is going to lead his people. As we follow Jesus, we're in that legacy. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is our king. But that, that says something to all of us. I think the other thing it says to us is, is our version of God too small? And so when I, when I read this, it made me think that the scribes, the religious leaders, the very smart people, they missed it. Could it be that sometimes we miss it? Could it be that we put God in this small, finite, finite box and don't realize that God is bigger and his work in your world can be greater? The scribes saw Jesus and Messiah too small. And I wonder if we follow in the footsteps of the scribes sometimes. And the invitation, I think, tonight as we hear this is to be open as we read the Scriptures and we see Jesus for all that he is. Would we allow Jesus to reshape our view of who he is?
Are we so closed off? Do we all already have it figured out? Or are we open enough to let Jesus come in and reshape our view about what it means to be led by him? Now, what does it mean to be led by him? The remainder of our time, I just want to spend, Jesus gives us one little example. What does it mean to be led by God? What does it mean to follow this great, if Jesus is a king, he's the son of God, what does it mean to be led by the king? Let's just keep reading Mark 12, verse 38. Two little scenarios that happen that totally play off each other. It says in verse 38, as, he's, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law, because they they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. So Jesus is saying, okay, I'm the king. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God. I've come like David, but greater than David, to rule. Now, how do I want my people who follow me to live? He says, not like the scribes, these teachers of the law. They wear robes. So how did you know who was a scribe or a rabbi? They wore these long robes, ornate, with tassels at the end, and they were made for worship. When you came into synagogue, they would wear their robe, and it would mark them out as someone as important. You wear your clothes. I'm a leader. I've got my clothes. The challenge is that these leaders who should have been humble, like David the king, uh, they were a little stuck up. And so they wore the robe everywhere. They wore the robe in the marketplace. If you invited them to the party, they wore the robe. They wanted the seat of honor. They wanted the best place to be seated right next to the guest of honor at every banquet. The, the people, the leaders, quote unquote, were not leading as God intended. And so Jesus says, don't follow their example. What does he say? Verse 40. They devour widows' houses. The leaders in his day, the scribes, the teachers, not all of them, but many of them, they were corrupt. They weren't like David. David was a man like God, after God's own heart. David had a heart for God. He was a great king. But these men, they're not, they're not following in David's footsteps. They eat up widows' houses. Uh, women who have very little to give are giving their money into the temple. And these teachers of the law, these scribes, they're abusing it. They're wasting God's resources. Rather than helping the poor, they're putting the poor into a deeper hole. And Jesus is saying, I see it. They make a show with their lengthy prayers. They, they, on the outside, the teachers of the law were the people you wanted to be. And so don't point the finger at them. We would want to be like them. But Jesus is saying, I know the heart. I'm the great king. And the way that they lead is not the way that my followers are going to lead. They make lengthy prayers, but their hearts aren't with me. These men, he says at the end of verse 40, will be punished most severely. So Jesus is going to make a contrast. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the son of God. He's a king. But when he comes to rule, it will not be like everybody else. And so when it comes to us in our world, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, don't be like them. They look good on the outside, but the inside they're corrupt. And so the invitation tonight, if you're going to choose to follow the king, if you're going to choose to follow Jesus, where does that hit your world? It means that as he's leading us, we follow him. And so I should pattern my life after the life of Jesus. And Jesus says, when you look at these quote-unquote church leaders, this is not how you're supposed to live. They look good on the outside. They get the places of honor. They can quote the scriptures. But really behind the scenes, they're corrupt. They don't handle God's resources well. They make a show of the prayers. 
And, and Jesus wants them to know, and he's speaking it to them, and he wants us to know, we can't fake it. We can't. If we choose to follow Jesus, if we choose to follow the king, he sees it all. He's not like a human king, a human president, a human pastor, a human leader, where you can put on a show to me, and I probably will not know what's going on. But when we choose to follow the great king, the Messiah, the Son of God, we need to know that everything's exposed. And so he knows the heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And so God takes David and raises him up to lead because he's pure on the inside. And, and so it goes with the kingdom of God. If you want to be a great leader in God's kingdom, if you want God to use you, if you want to make something with your life, it's not about looking good on the outside. It's not about putting on a good show and taking a position and being seen by all. Uh, Jesus knows and he sees those guys, uh, they devour. They're hurtful. It's show and tell, but it's not authentic. But here's the beautiful thing. That's the bad side. And I don't want to end on the negative. Jesus ends on a positive. Look at verse 41. If you want to see what we're supposed to look like, this is beautiful. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And he watched the crowds put their money into the temple treasury. So Jesus is in the temple. And remember, the temple is not just a place of worship. It's like Fort Knox. People bring their money. Uh, every Jew was to bring their offerings to the temple. And they would collect it each year for God's work. Uh, people saved their money. The rich, because the, the temple is well protected, they would bring their money and store their money at the temple. Because there was no bank. There was no place to hide it. But you'd bring it. So the temple is a place of resources. The teachers of the law and the scribes are squandering God's resources. But God knows it. But look at what happens here. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Oh, okay, great. The rich throw in tons. So, so God honors the rich, right? Well, not really. But a poor widow came. And she put in two very small copper coins. Two lepta, the, the smallest bit of of currency that they had in Rome. Uh, the NIV says here, worth only a few cents. So the rich put in stashes of cash, but a woman puts in, say, two pennies. Verse 43, look at this. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, come here, guys, come here. I want you to see something. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Why? They all gave out of their wealth. They're rich. They came in rich, they leave rich. They gave some money, and it seems like a lot, but they got a whole lot more at home. But this lady, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. So um, all that she had to live on uh, is, a, is a good translation, but it misses a little bit, a little bit of a nuance when it comes to her scenario she gave everything. She gave her whole life. Literally, you could translate it. it. That passage ends. She gave her whole life. She gave everything. And so where does this tie with all that we read prior? Because it seems it's just disjointed, but it's actually connected. Jesus is the great king, and he wants and he's come to lead his people. And you and I are his people. So the invitation is to see Jesus as not just a man, but as God's anointed son. He's not the son of David, just some human guy. He's actually God's son. God came. 
uh, to redeem us, to lead us, to, to guide us. And when God comes, the invitation is to follow. What is it like to follow? Don't follow in the pattern of the human tradition. It says, if you look good on the outside, you're going to be all right. No, it's an internal work. How is it an internal work? Jesus is standing in the temple. And how does Jesus know what she gave and what the rich people gave? Here's how it worked. In the temple court, the, the, the court of women, there were 13 boxes. And so there are 13 boxes to give in. And so there are these huge boxes with a, a funnel at the top. looked like a trumpet. It was a ram's horn kind of thing and called a shofar, for those of you who are interested in such things. And so it was where you would deposit your money. Big at the top, so your money goes in, and then you can't stick your hand in in the cookie jar and get it out. All right, so there's 13 boxes. So you go to the table and you go to present your offering and you present it to one of the leaders there and they record it so they can keep accountability what goes in where. And the boxes are for different types of offerings. This is an offering for the poor. This is an offering for the temple. And so you say, I want, I want to present this for such and such. And so I could stand by the, temp, by the table and know what you gave. And so, so Jesus is standing there watching what people give. And some guy gives a load of cash. Great, but he knows what's going on. And then a woman comes, poor little widow. And Jesus pays attention. What is she going to give? And she takes her two little coins. And, and the instructor, he probably hears it, watches her put it in and says, guys, 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 you want to know what it's like to live in my kingdom? If you want to know tonight what it is like to really honor God with your life, she gave her whole life. That's all that she had. And so Jesus, the beauty here is Jesus is not looking for a large amount per se. Some of us, he's like, Jose, I'm a student. I don't have a bunch. And oh, Jose, I just started following Jesus. What can I do? Can I really make a difference? What Jesus is looking is the posture of your heart. Why do you give what you give? And with what kind of heartbeat do you give? She is a poor widow. In their culture, you can't get any lower. The last thing that you would want to be in the first century is poor, for one thing most people are poor, though. And a widow, why? A widow has no protector, has no one, no one to oversee, to guide and protect. A widow who isn't married has no family around her. She's the one who's vulnerable. vulnerable. But, but Jesus points her out as the perfect example. She's dependent. The widow has no one to turn to but God. And so what does she do? Out of her heart for God, she says, God, I'm dependent on you for everything. What a beautiful picture. The rich, the learned, the teachers of the law, the scribes, they're putting on a show, but in their heart, they're not following the great king. But this poor woman is the model example for you and I. So what does it look like for us? Where do we kind of land the plane? How are we going to follow in this example? The, in, the invitation tonight is to give our whole life. Now, are you saying, Jose, you're, are you suggesting I give every dollar I have to the church? No, you're missing the point. It was the way that she approached her sacrifice, the way that she approached her, give, her, her giving that honored God. And so tonight I can say to any one of you, the amount that you have that you want to give. Now I'm not taking another offering. This isn't about cash. But the amount of your life, the amount of your energy, the amount of your focus that you want to give towards God, God sees it. And so when we come half-hearted, when we come with this little, Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but this is my time. This is my space. I don't want you to invade that. God sees that.
And the great king, other than trying to kill us with a monsoon here, <laughs> you're like, what in the world? The wrath of God is coming? No, no, just kidding. It may be coming, but the roof will hold up. <laughs> but, but I, I hope. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. Well, Sunday night humor. But the invitation tonight is, is to follow Jesus with everything. And so Jesus said back in Mark 8, if anyone wants to become one of my followers, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is the one who's about to give his whole life. And that's what I want us to see. The woman modeled out what Jesus is about to do. Jesus is about to go to the cross and lay down his life so that you and I could be free. And this woman, in a real sense, she gets it. So two things tonight as we, we're going to respond tonight first before singing and going to the Lord's table. We're going to go to the bread and the cup first and foremost right out of the teaching because we want to go and in a sense like anointing, oil represents the setting apart of, of a king to lead. I think there's no greater symbols than the bread and the cup that symbolize what it means for us to follow Jesus. Jesus is the one who paid the price. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus has done is something we want to go after. So right after this teaching, in a few moments, we're going to go to the table and, and, and follow in the footsteps of this woman. There will be no offering things for you to put in. But with what approach do you come to the Lord's table? She came with humility. Jesus. Uh, for, her, for her, it's Yahweh. Take it all. She came to the temple. Take it all, Lord. I give it all to you. Tonight, the invitation, I hope for all of us, is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, to come to God and the areas that we've been pushing away, say, God, I know you see them. I know you know them. But I want you to have not just part of me. I want you to have all of me. Uh, two, two applications tonight that I think we can take from the text. One is that Jesus is greater. Uh, we read it back a few verses ago. Uh, he, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus is greater than they expected. And Jesus is greater than we can expect. And this is comforting news. Some of us, we're having a hard time. We're in a pinch. We're in a bad spot. What you need to be reminded is Jesus is not just some ordinary religious guru with practical advice. Jesus is the Savior of the universe. And he's the Son of God come to seek and save those who are lost and to bring hope to those who are hopeless. And so Jesus is the greater one you can come to. Tonight, no matter what you are going through, it could be a sickness in a body and you're wondering, God, will you bring healing and wholeness to who I am? It could be like resources. You're just, you're at a low point and you're like, God, I want to make it. Can I make it, Lord? You need to remember when you approach Jesus, you are approaching the greater one. And he has all that you need, and he is all that you need. So the invitation is follow Jesus. He's the greater one. But secondly, coupled with that, is Jesus invites us to respond with our whole life. Uh, following Jesus doesn't require up front that you say, okay, it's all yours. That's a process. But you need to know that if you choose to say, Jesus, I want you to be my king, that what he's going to invite you to is step by step, day by day, month by month, submit all of you are to all that he is and follow him. And so you could be following Jesus 10 years and this invitation still applies to you. 
The invitation is to follow him with all of our life. And so we as a church want to go all in. We want to grow in responding to Jesus' word to say, no matter who we are, we have something to offer God. So if you're 15 here tonight, you're like, I have nothing to offer God. If you're a student, choose to give him your life tonight and follow him no matter what your friends do. Honor him in the way that you think. Honor him in the way that you live. All of us have gifts, resources, talents. Whatever those are, give them to God. God wants to use us in ways that are beyond us. But some of us feel like we don't have anything to give. Remember this lady, poor little widow. And Jesus says, this is the greatest one. This is the kind of person I want all of my followers to be. So no matter what you have, no matter where you're at, the invitation is always, and it is again tonight, offer that bit back to God and invite God to do in and through you what you could never do by yourself. I think Jesus wants to use us in greater ways. And he, he doesn't want us to limit his ability to work through us as not only a community, but as an individual.